Thanks, Jonathan. Even if he did try to cut it off part of the way through it. That's a familiar passage. You guys know it well. Um, and you don't really need the rest. You know the rest of the story for the main part, and we'll kind of dig into it. Uh, but if you were with us last week, you recall um, that we've been in this series on grief, on trauma, on loss, and suffering, and, and how we as believers come to grips with all of these things, how we understand these things. Last week, we were looking at these two really beautiful stories, the story of a man, Mephibosheth, um, and how he finds he is given a place at the table of King David for the rest of his days. We looked at the story of uh, this woman with a bleeding condition in Mark 5, how she experiences healing, how she's healed by her faith in Jesus. But I think, um, as Jonathan and I were talking uh, about things leading up to all of this, we knew there might be in your minds a question as you're hearing those really beautiful stories what if things don't get better? Like last week, we're looking at two stories where things improve dramatically, drastically for these two people. But like, what if things don't get better? Um, what if I'm not healed? What if I'm not delivered? Right? What if I'm not freed from the burden I've been living with? What if you, like this woman in Mark 5, you're walking in anticipation and hope, the expectation of God's healing, you're walking with the hopes that this thing will come to fruition, as she does, and things don't change. Like, what are you supposed to do with that, right? Even as beautiful as his story is, right? The story of Mephibosheth. He's given a place at the table of the king, but he's still a cripple the rest of his life. And maybe you find yourself in the same sort of place. Like, it feels like you've experienced healing at some level. But it still feels kind of like you walk with a limp. And you've been walking with a limp for a long time. Um, or maybe I think about that woman. Uh, she's experienced healing. Um, she has this incredible thing take place in her life, right? It flips everything upside down. Everything changes. But like, what if that woman... After years of living in isolation from everybody around her because of her condition, now she struggles to, to form relationships. Now maybe she struggles to forgive the people who kept her at a distance, who pushed her away for years. What do you do with that when things don't actually get better? And these are really important questions, right? We don't want to just talk about this and not deal with the, the really difficult aspect of, of grief and trauma where it sometimes lingers. The effects sometimes still hang on, right? And I think that's the kind of questions you see being wrestled with in Daniel 3, right? That's what we're seeing happen in the story of Daniel. But Daniel actually doesn't figure in this story at all. This is the story of Mishael and Hananiah and Azariah. Three men who find themselves just like that woman in Mark 5. They have been named by their circumstance. We didn't know her name. We just knew her as the woman with a bleeding condition. And we don't really know them by their names. They are literally named by their circumstance because they're not in Israel anymore. And so they don't get to have Israelite names. They're given Babylonian names. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, that's their new names. And they're asked to forget everything they cared about and they loved in their homes and to be loyal to Babylon. 
And most of you know that story well, right? Even if you don't read the whole thing, you know what happens in this story. You know the way it plays out. You have these three faithful believers, how they're delivered from the fiery furnace, right? They will not yield, and they find themselves in this really dark place. And yet, they are delivered. Yet, they find someone is with them in the flames. But here's the thing. It's hard for us to go back and hear that story like we did the first time. If you know the story well, it's hard to go back. Just like it's hard to go back and watch that movie where you know the surprise twist ending, right? It got you the first time. It did something to you the first time you saw it. It is hard to get back to that place. You can't go back and unremember the twist ending, right? Every time you see it, you will always know what's coming from now on. And the same thing is true of Daniel 3. Every time we come to this story, we will always know what's coming. And I think that takes some of the power from it. It's hard for us to go back to that. But what's cool about this story is they are still in the midst of the struggle. They don't know what's coming. And we're given this little window into their lives, this moment in their lives where they're really wrestling with the questions that you and I wrestle with so often, where they're really trying to consider what's going to happen. They don't know what the outcome will be. And they're wrestling with it just like we wrestle with it. We're given this window into this moment of, of vulnerability and honesty from these three people who are trying to sort through what they're facing. And I think it's moments like this undo all of our triumphalism. This is the moment where all of our triumphalism goes to die. That may be a word you're not as familiar with, but you've seen it. You know triumphalism. You've seen it in the church, right? You know the triumphalistic believer, the person who's always experiencing victory. They see victory everywhere they go. Things are always getting better. They have nothing to fear. They will always triumph. They will always be healed Everything is always positive and good, and they're always moving up. This is a picture you've seen over and over again. You can just kind of stamp Jesus' name on anything, right? To avoid anything unpleasant or inconvenient, that's triumphalism. And this is the place where triumphalism just kind of withers in the heat of the furnace. That all melts away. Something else remains for them. Because see, when you're, you're like staring into the flames, right? When you have this narcissistic madman demanding that you do something that is contrary to who you are. What are you going to do with it? Your triumphalism just can't hold up under the weight of that. This idea that everything's always going to get better, right? They aren't certain that they're going to be delivered. They're not certain they're going to be healed or freed. They're not certain that deliverance will look the way they thought it would, at least. We could say that. They don't know. But there is a certainty of one thing. There's this certainty of God's presence with his people in the midst of the flames, right? Our certainty is not made or bound somehow to our circumstances. Our certainty is not defined by our circumstances. Our certainty is tied to his presence with us in the midst of the grief and the trauma and the suffering, the pain, the loss, whatever it might be. This is our certainty. Our certainty is not a circumstance. Our, our certainty is a person with us 
in the furnace. That's the story. That's where the story is headed ultimately. Nebuchadnezzar looks into this furnace and he realizes these three men aren't alone. There's someone else with them. And you can speculate about who that is, but there's no question. God's presence is there with his people even in the furnace. This is our certainty. Not a circumstance, but a person. This is what we cling to. This is what the story is leading us to. I was thinking a lot about uh, Viktor Frankl. Uh, someone quoted him actually uh, in, in a commentary I was, I was studying in this week. And um, he has a book that I had, had not picked up in a, a long time. Um, but Viktor Frankl was a, an Austrian psychiatrist. He's from Vienna, like all uh, psychiatrists, apparently. If you know, you've, you're familiar if you've studied psychiatry or psychology at all. Um, obviously, Viktor Frankl growing up would have studied uh, in the schools of thought of so many different people from Vienna, like Sigmund Freud, like Alfred Adler, all of these voices that were so important, right? And Frankl was different from them, right? Freud is famous for teaching the, the pleasure principle. You know it well, right? He says the thing that motivates us, the thing that drives us more than anything else in life is pleasure. We want to take care of that first and foremost. And he includes a lot of these things, like even, even food is, is a part of pleasure, right? But that's what drives us, he says, pleasure. Adler was different. Adler comes along not very long after, really around the same time. They were kind of contemporaries. And Adler says, no, no, it, it's not that. It's superiority that drives us. That's what we're after. We don't want to be inferior. We spend our lives grasping for power. We spend our lives trying to be successful, trying to be impressive. That is what we're after in life. It's what drives us and motivates us. And Viktor Frankl comes along, and he's rejected by both schools because he says, no, it's, it's meaning. It's purpose. That's the thing that drives us more than anything else. We need meaning and purpose in our lives or else we wither. If we don't know what the meaning and purpose of the thing we are doing or going through, we wither in those moments. And he pushes it over and over again. We need meaning and purpose. And he, he published what was his most important work, a book called Man's Search for Meaning, in 1945. That was right after he was released from a German concentration camp. He's a Jewish man. And he suffers in Auschwitz for years, processing the real trauma and grief of the Holocaust with those victims as, as one of them. He's experiencing it himself. He's spending all this time processing this with people as they're living through it. He actually survives. He loses his wife. He loses much of his family in the whole thing. And he writes this book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he, he has this portion where he quotes Friedrich Nietzsche, another German man, uh, and Nietzsche makes this statement. He says, He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. Now he's using that to, to speak to his argument. What he had seen all these people suffer through in the Holocaust, what he had seen all these people be traumatized by, right? He was recognizing that they needed more than anything else through all of that meaning. They needed purpose. And when they lost that, when they lost hold of meaning and purpose in their suffering and their trauma and their grief, that, he said, is when they began to die. And he could watch it happen. People losing hold of, of meaning and purpose. He saw people struggling with the how of their existence. 
the how of their existence was painful, right? How their lives looked for years was inhumane. It was awful, right? They were dehumanized. They became nothing more than numbers. They had no name. They were just nameless laborers. That's it. And that was those who were lucky enough to survive. And when he's looking in those people's eyes, he says the thing they need more than anything else is meaning and purpose. Now, you're familiar with that. We think in those terms, largely thanks to, to Frankel's thought, right? We need meaning. We're searching for meaning and purpose. As a culture, that's one of the things we, we're after over and over again. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves in a very similar kind of position, right? They're living as exiles in a foreign land. They're longing for their homes. They're longing for their loved ones, most of whom they see again. They know this. They're trying to come to grips with this. They've been grieving. They're men who are well acquainted with trauma. They know what it is to suffer. They know what it is to, to be in pain. And they had been searching for years, wrestling with this question of what the meaning of the exile was. What was the purpose that God had in all of this? They wrestled with it for years. And over the years, it seems they found purpose. That's what allows them to say what they say to the king, right? Over the years, they found their purpose was that even though they were living in a foreign land, they could still be citizens of the kingdom of God. They could live as citizens of God's kingdom while they were living in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. This was their purpose, to live still as citizens of the kingdom of God, even though they were on foreign soil. They found they had not just purpose, but all of this was possible because of the presence of God, right? They found not only did they have a purpose, but that purpose arose from the reality that God was just as present with them in Babylon as he had been in the temple at Jerusalem. They believed they had both purpose as citizens of the kingdom and, and the presence of God with them. They, they held on to that. And so when they were commanded to do something that not only they just disagreed with, it was more than that. They didn't just disagree with the idolatry that they were being asked to kind of commit by bowing down to, to this object made of gold, this enormous statue. It's not just they disagree with it. It's that that compromises their very purpose. They can't bow down to this. They're citizens of another kingdom. They can't worship this God because they worship another one. It compromises their purpose. And they're, they're in that moment with the one place where it seems like God can't go with them, right? What God can rescue you, Nebuchadnezzar says, from my furnace? God can't go with you there, he says. But they are certain. He's present with them even in the midst of the flames. They expect that to be true. They have this, this purpose this presence that they cling to. And so no matter how many times that they're told, you have to bow down. They're given the instructions. They are commanded to do things this way. I don't know if you guys have, have read Daniel 3 before, but there's this repetition to it. Four different times, there's almost a word-for-word -word repetition of the command, right? When you hear the music, whether it's of the horn or the pipe, the lyre or the harp, the zither or the flute, especially the zither, right? Because everybody knows what a zither is, right? Five points to the first person who knows what a zither is. 
Anyone? No? Okay, me either. Okay, I, I didn't know either. It's, it's like a, kind of like a harpsichord, lots of strings, almost like a dulcimer, and you'd strum it like that, but lots of strings. It's a zither. Check out, you know, whatever obscure TikTok musician you want to. They've probably got some <laughs> zither solo out there. Like, that exists. The zither is still being played, apparently. But, uh, yeah, so that, that's what's being said. Like, over and over again, they're being told, when the zither solo drops, you have to bow down. Right? That's, that's the way this is going to happen. That's what you're going to do. When the epic Babylonian rock opera begins, you bow down. It's very clear, and there's this clarity about it. Here's the command. You know the command. They do. They, they know it well. But they're saying, oh, king, we, we just we can't. We refuse. We're, we're not going to. And Nebuchadnezzar, like any you know, crazed narcissist, he cannot deal with it. He orders the the furnace heated even hotter than it already was, right? Seven times hotter because he's tired of their little act of civil disobedience. He's had enough with the whole thing. And in that moment, when they're threatened, being thrown into the fire, being martyred, they say, something courageous, something unexpected in this kind of moment We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Even if he doesn't. Those words, man, that that so perfectly encapsulates the experience, the real life experience that some of you have had, that so many people in the church have had, that so many people in our culture have right now. It expresses the real honesty of what grief is like. This is the real experience of believers who are suffering through grief and trauma. There's an honesty to those words that you don't often get Again, triumphalism is where we kind of try to hide and say, no, everything's going to be fine. God's going to work it out. Everything will be good, right? That's not what they say. They say, God will deliver us from your hand, but even if he doesn't, they're still in the middle of it. They're wrestling with the question that you and I have wrestled with before. What if things don't get better? What if Nebuchadnezzar throws us into the furnace and it's too much and we're overcome by it all? What if this is the end? What if we're not healed? What if we're not freed? What if we're not delivered? They know they may not be. And yet they say, even if he doesn't, even if God doesn't deliver us from our circumstance, even if things don't get better, even if it doesn't change, that does not change who he is. And it does not change who we are, this identity we have in him, this purpose we have in him. It does not change any of that. His presence is with us. This purpose remains true. But I think the reality of, of trauma and grief and suffering, these things that we, we wrestle with, these questions we ask, so many times in the midst of, of painful circumstances, we find ourselves searching. We're, we're trying to answer these questions. We're trying to find understanding. We're trying to find meaning and purpose and kind of, you know, put the pieces together, right? But the reality is, you won't always find answers in the midst of the trauma. You won't find meaning to some of the things you're dealing with. 
You won't find a purpose for it. You won't understand it in the midst of it all. Some things are just too unspeakably painful. That's the reality. There's no way around that. The truth is, there are so many situations, so much grief, where you will not find purpose or meaning. What you see in this story is not a group of people who are finding purpose and meaning in the midst of their trauma. They are bringing purpose and meaning into their trauma. They bring it with them. That is the reality of it. We bring meaning and purpose into these really painful moments in our lives. Through all these men have been through, all that they've suffered, all they've wrestled with for years, they have clung to this purpose. They've clung to the hope of God's presence with them, even in a godless place like Babylon. He's with them. They can live as citizens of God's kingdom, even though they're stuck in somebody else's. They've held on to this, right? And they bring that meaning with them. They bring this purpose they've held on to for so long. They bring that into this situation, this confrontation with a crazed megalomaniac like Nebuchadnezzar. They bring that with them. They're not searching for it, hoping they're going to find it. No, this is terrible and painful, but they know from all the years that they've been worshipers, all the years that they've suffered this has come to be true for them, and they hold on to it. Even if he doesn't, they say. Here's the reality. There is no if to grief. There is no if to trauma. At some point in your life, you will grieve. Really heavy things, and I don't mean just like we talked last week about there are so many smaller things that we don't grieve, things we don't even realize we need to grieve. I'm talking about the really heavy things. There is no if to trauma, like you will walk through really traumatic and painful things. You will suffer at some level, and some of you are like, yeah, absolutely, I've been suffering for years. And some of you are like, I have struggled to find any sort of connect to what you're talking about because that is not my story. I have not suffered much. But there is no if. We will wrestle with these things. We will enter into these kinds of situations. And what I think we're seeing in the lives of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that when those moments come, we bring this purpose we bring this meaning that is ours into those situations. You can't look for it. You're not going to find understanding. You're not going to find good answers in the midst of the really painful things you're going through all the time. Sometimes it'll be much, much later in life when you come to understand the things you've been through. But ultimately, we have to come into these places. We bring meaning and purpose with us into the furnace. We bring identity. We bring who we are as God's people there. Everything else may burn away, but that will remain. Everything else may burn away, but his presence with us, that will remain, and we cling to that. Purpose and presence remain. If you've ever read uh, 2 Corinthians, you see Paul wrestle with the same questions that they are. It's one of my, my favorite books uh, because there is a, a humility and an honesty that you see in Paul. Chapter 12 uh, is kind of the height of all of this. 12 has this, this very vague reference to something Paul is dealing with, some burden he's bearing. 
We don't know what it is. He just calls it the thorn in his flesh. And he, he pleads with God to take it from him. He pleads that this burden might be lifted off of his shoulders. Uh, and you may be familiar with that passage. We can read that and you can follow along. Uh, it's just verses 7 through 10 of chapter 12. Paul says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, there's far too much to be said uh, and far, much, far too much reading for us all to do to try to speculate about what the thorn in Paul's flesh is. You will find a million people who think they know exactly what it is. We don't know. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to speculate about that. You can read for years on that and, and listen to people argue about it. That's not what I'm interested in this morning. What we know is that Paul has some burden, something that he desires to be freed of, something that weighs heavy on his heart, a thorn in his flesh, right? Not only that, we don't really have time to, to deal with, <laughs> with what he says, that this is an, an enemy somehow, right? He's been sent somehow this, this tormentor by the enemy himself. Satan is a part of the equation. We don't, we don't understand what that looks like necessarily. It sounds a lot like Job. If you remember, in Job, God tells Satan to consider his servant, Job. God allows that to happen. It makes you think a little bit of Peter. If you remember Jesus looking at Peter and saying, I have given you over to be sifted like wheat by the enemy. We don't have a lot of time to, to, to talk about that. That is another thing. That, that's like an entirely different series. But here's what I, I want us to focus on that speaks to this series. Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I think we're all familiar with that. We know it well, but like reconsider it, right? When we, we think about power, you can't help but think of Jesus, right? Jesus is ministering in power. Throughout the New Testament, you're seeing Jesus do these incredible things. You're seeing miraculous things happening in the name of Jesus over and over again. You're seeing healing. You're seeing people delivered from oppression. You're seeing people changed in the hearing of his words, right? That's, that's power. But Paul says... The power of Christ is most clearly evident in weakness. All of those other things we're so easily distracted by, right? And obviously we want to see those things. But Paul goes so far as to say, Christ's power is most clearly evident 
in weakness. Like sometimes victory doesn't look like what you thought it would. Sometimes victory looks like defeat. And that's hard for us to swallow. Because sometimes our lives as followers of Jesus feel like defeat. It feels like we're taking steps backwards sometimes. Like we're losing and Paul says, sometimes that's what victory looks like. It's not what you expected, right? There is no moment more powerful in Christ's life than the cross. It is what sets in motion the resurrection. It is not until he's willing to suffer in that way, to die, that we initiate resurrection, that it all begins. There's nothing more powerful than the cross, right? It is at the height of Christ's weakness that God's power is most clearly revealed, right? This is where God is setting captives free more than anywhere else, the cross. This is where power is evident, right? At Jesus' weakest, right? When he is like a lamb led to the slaughter, there you see the lion of Judah most clearly, right? You cannot see the lion rightly until you've seen the lamb. This is where power is most evident, at Jesus' weakest moment. When we don't have an answer to prayer, right? When the effects of trauma still linger, when the grief hasn't subsided yet, when you're still wrestling with it, when you don't know if things will get better, when you're still asking the question, there, Paul says, there is Christ's power. Don't be confused. So then he says something even more unexpected, right? Based on this idea that Christ's power is made perfect in weakness, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I will boast. I will celebrate, he's saying. I'm going to celebrate these really painful moments. Not things you expected us to be talking about necessarily when we said we would talk about grief and trauma. Celebration and boasting. Paul's not saying because trauma is actually good and you just don't realize it yet. You'll come to realize that was actually good for you. No, that's not what he's saying. There's no way around it. There are some things in our lives that just should never have happened to you. That's just the reality of it. Paul's not saying these things are good and you just haven't come to realize it. Eventually you'll be enlightened enough to realize that thing that happened to you was okay. No, that's not what he's saying. He's celebrating it, he says, because Christ's power rests on him in those moments. It is in weakness that Christ's power rests on him. And here's what's so cool. The word that Paul is using when he says that Christ's power rests on him in those moments of weakness, it's the same word that John uses. In John chapter 1, you've heard it before. He says, the word of God took on flesh and he dwelled among us. Sometimes you'll hear us say he tabernacled among us. Paul uses that same word. Paul says that Christ's power dwells with us in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the weakness, the difficulty, the persecutions. Just like John says, the word tabernacled with us. The word rested with us. As the word dwelled with us in the God-man Jesus, so the power of Jesus dwells with us in the midst of the most fragile and vulnerable and painful moments of our lives. God is with us. Christ is with us. 
in those moments in a different kind of way. In the moments we're trying to avoid, the moments we're trying to escape, Paul says, I'm going to boast in those moments because even as painful as they are, I know I'm going to experience the presence of God in a different kind of way in those moments than any other moment I might live. God dwells with us in the midst of the grief. Even as he dwells with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the heat of the furnace. And so, from there, Paul says the most shocking thing of all. So, he says, I delight. Again, words you don't expect to hear in a series on, on trauma and grief. And I try to be really careful about because I don't want to belittle your trauma or your grief. I don't want to um, cheapen it somehow. That's not what Paul is doing. In the midst of very real suffering, in the midst of wrestling with the questions that you and I have wrestled with, Paul says, I'm still delighting in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, in trauma, and suffering, and loss, in depression, and anxiety. This is what he's saying, right? I delight. Not because those things are good, but because somehow Christ is most present in those moments. Christ is with us in a different kind of way, right? If I should have to endure such things, the beauty of what I might be dealing with is that Christ is somehow with me in a way that, that I might not have experienced otherwise. There's delight in the midst of the grief and the suffering and the pain and the loss because Christ is there with us in the midst of the furnace. And it is like we said, there's not an if to the furnace, right? It's a win. There are these moments where you're going to be asked to endure things that you don't know you'll make it through. You don't know what the other side will look like. And Paul says, I will delight in those moments. He's not going hunting for them. He's not looking for them. He's not trying to, to suffer in this sort of like masochistic fashion. No. But when they come, he says, I delight because I expect the presence of Christ to be powerfully present there. Everything else may burn away, but this will remain. Christ's presence with us. We will not waste away in those moments, right? Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The cool part of the story is they emphasize this, um, that when they come out of the furnace, not only... Are they not burned or scarred in any sort of way? Their clothes aren't even singed, and they, they don't even have the smell of smoke on them. Somehow, they don't waste away in the heat of the furnace. And Paul is saying, as painful as it is, you will not waste away in the furnace. You will find victory in the defeat. You will find nearness to Christ in a different kind of way in the pain, right? And that's the invitation. Today in this series, as the band comes, as we step back into worship, like the invitation is delight. Come to the table. Come to the mysterious presence of Christ with us in places we didn't necessarily realize he was, right? Come to the table, to the bread and the cup, and find that Christ is present. Even if you're still in the furnace, come delight in the reality 
that while you're in the furnace, there with you is the power of Christ. There with you is the presence of God. Your purpose is not undone. Your identity is not undone by the thing you have endured. Delight in these painful things that you've gone through. Not because they're good, but because God is present with us in a different way. His power is revealed in a different way through these things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for um, just a, an opportunity to be gathered around your word and to ask some difficult questions, um, to look to the story of scripture, um, to better understand the things that maybe we have walked through or people we love have walked through. And God, we pray by your spirit that we would be able to delight not because of our circumstances, uh, because they're really painful sometimes, Lord, but we would be able to delight because we know that in the midst of those things, you are somehow more present. You are somehow with us. And we pray that we would overcome in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our grief. In Jesus' name, amen.